This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to begin by just raising some questions about the concept of development. And it's a very strange notion. Development seems to be a change. So there are two different points in time or more, and the thing is not quite the same as it was at the later point. Uh, at the later point, it's not the same as it was at the earlier point. And yet, if you study Aristotle and think of classical categories of change, it doesn't fit into any of them. Right? So this change in quantity, augmentation, diminution, development is not that. It's not just growing in bulk. Right? There's change in quality. Well, development is not change in quality. There's change of place or of relationship. It's not that either. Right? It's obviously not generation or corruption. It's not coming into existence or going out of existence. So what kind of change is it? It really does raise all of these deep questions of sameness and difference, right? continuity across very dramatic changes in some cases. Right? So that's the first thing I want to do with you is just to puzzle with you about what development is. I think it's a bit mysterious. It has something to do with essence and life. So Aristotle has this notion of essence as, uh, of what it was to be. Right? So there's some kind of realization and actualization um, entelechy of the thing in development. Um, living things seem to develop. Um, it involves perhaps some notion of exegesis. Um, you know, I recently completed a book on the Gospel of John, and it's striking that in the prologue of John, Jesus is described as the one who gives an exegesis of the Father for us. Um, this notion of unfolding, of explaining, of making clear, of making manifest a huge theme in the Gospel of John, right? That seems very much related to development. So in a word, development, it seems, has to do with life, essence, personality, expression, and even somehow illumination or the shedding of life or clarification. Now, Christians should anticipate that their religion, both in what it is, its mode of practice, and what it believes develops. The Gospel of John, I already referred to it, would suggest that, right? Because it uses all of these things that I mentioned, life, essence, light, personality, exegesis, to explain the incarnation. And our Lord says that a good scribe in the kingdom brings forth treasures that are both new and old, and the word new comes first. Right? So it can't be, being a Christian can't be a matter of just remaining the same. And for something that's alive, to stay the same, it has to develop. Right? So if you took a 40-year-old man and he had the same proportion and manners of a toddler, there'd be something untoward there. You know, in a way, I want to say this directed at any of my Protestant brothers or sisters who may be in, the, uh, in this audience. Right? Because one time, uh, when I was a Protestant, uh, there's nothing more than I wanted I want more than to be part of primitive Christianity. I really wanted to, if I could go back in time and join the disciples, that would be the thing that would be greatest for me. And I was looking for that form of Christianity, which was the closest to early Christianity. But I think that was kind of like looking for 
a grown man who looked like a toddler. You know, there's something gravely mistaken about that. And Newman was very important for me in coming to understand why that's mistaken. Right. Um, okay, now I want to just say another thing about Aristotle. I'm an Aristotelian, and I believe he's the teacher of those who know. I believe that Newman's correct, that insofar as we're learned, we can't but be Aristotelians. I want to return just very briefly to Aristotle's works and say, well, although none of his descriptions of change seem to account well for development, don't we find implicit in his writing um, many things which help to clarify the notion of development? Well, he does speak of the relationship between axioms and theorems of a deductive system is like that. So the axioms have in potential all of the theorems. When you're deriving theorems from, an axi from axioms, you are developing what's already there in the axioms. He has this notion of outlining. Um, in anatomy kinetics, if you've studied that at the very beginning, he says yeah, any, once somebody's outlined something, um, anyone can go ahead and finish it. Right. Well, it's not that easy. And you might want to say, well, how can an outline contain the whole thing? But I think he has more the sense of the way in which you're taking notes on a paper and you jot an outline. And now you say, I've got it now. I know what I'm going to say. Right? And you've just put a few sentences down. Right? Um, you know, when I was composing this, I was thinking, what am I going to say? And I thought, and uh, I really had to come up with the outline. And I was completely at peace. I can fill in everything else. So that, that is really a matter of development, this exegesis we we're speaking about. And then um, his typical mode of discussing any subject is first to come up with a definition, which in a sense gives the genus. But then once you give the genus, the species can almost fall out. There's, it's as if they're contained already in the genus. And the, the species fall out depending upon a certain differentia, right? So, and then finally, in... Uh, after he's given the definition and the species, he'll, he'll generally investigate difficulties, aporiae, they're called in, in Greek. And it's through the encountering of these difficulties that a certain refinement and distinctions get drawn in any theory that he's developing. And hasn't the history of the church been like that? Like various heresies and confusions and so on that are like aporiae that are thrown towards the Catholic, the Christian community, and it has to resolve that. Right? So I, I do think that... Um, Aristotle's work is already very de developmental. I mean, there's a famous um, philologist, Werner Jaeger, who, wrote, who applied Darwinian ideas essentially to, to Aristotle's corpus. But if you just take any one of his treatises on, the, on its own or any treatment within a treatise, you already see this understanding of how intelligence uh, develops a subject. So I, and I want to make these Aristotelian points because Newman was deeply steeped in Aristotle. He taught Aristotle in tutorials in Oxford. He has that famous passage where he says that insofar as we're, we're educated persons, we can't but be Aristotelian because Aristotle set down the basis for all the disciplines in, in our civilization. And so he, he, he really is Aristotelian through and through. So I think that when he does discuss development, he does follow these Aristotelian lines. And I'll get back to that in a second when I quote the passage, the one that you got from his treatise on development of doctrine. Okay, now a little bit about John Henry Newman. He's now a saint. When I fell in love with him, really, as a graduate student, uh, I named a son John Henry, and 
most Catholics never even heard of him. Um, now he's a saint in the Catholic Church and uh, very well known. He was canonized in 2019 by Pope Francis. Pope Benedict made an exception to his rule and traveled to England in 2010 to beatify him. And his feast day is October 9th. I want to say something about exception to the rule. You may not know this, but beatification in the Catholic Church means that someone is raised up for uh, devotion within a certain group within the Catholic Church. If you're a Franciscan and you're beatified, then the Franciscan congregation is, so to speak, given permission to pray to you and treat you as a, one of the beati in heaven. But it, not for the universal church. And it had been the practice before Pope John Paul II that popes would never be involved in beatifications. Only cardinals and bishops, the ordinaries, would be involved, or the head of prelate of a congregation or abbot or something like that. And John Paul II was so keen on beatifications and canonizations that he wanted to do them all. And he had every weekend in St. Peter's Square, there was somebody who was being beatified by him. And, and Cardinal Ratzinger at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith said, you know, this is not really proper because the Pope shouldn't be involved in beatifications. That's not really his role. And he's, he changed that when he became Pope. He stopped doing beatifications. I say this because he made one exception. He went to England to beatified John, John Henry Newman. He thought that this was already somebody who was a teacher of the Universal Church. Newman was a leader of the so-called Oxford movement in the early 1800s. This was a movement, you have to understand at the time there was still, you had to sign on to the Articles of Faith of the Anglican Church to have a teaching position in the University of Oxford and also be celibate. If you got married, you had to resign as a fellow. It was, the universe changed dramatically within 30 years after Newman's departure. But then it was basically a training ground for highly educated clergy pastors in the Anglican Church. And for students who thought they were very likely to become clergy. And then for those who are kind of associated. But that was the real core and prestigious group of the University of Oxford at the time. It's actually quite astounding how well educated the Anglican uh, clerics were through the middle part of the 1800s. They were really extremely uh, well-read. Like we think of Monsignor Knox in the, 19, in the 20th century as being especially learned, but that was fairly common standard, actually, a century earlier. So among this group, Newman was preeminent. He was a, a, le he was a legend. He would walk down the streets of Oxford. People would avoid him, and there goes Newman, right? Um, and he's still a young man. He was in his 30s. He was, um, so this is, it was a very prestigious movement because he's very smart people. Oxford was the top university along with Cambridge in England, the Church of England. There is a return to the fathers. Now, in part, this was a follow-up of a movement in scholarship that really began two or three centuries before that. Maybe you found a lot of these translations in bookstores of old volumes from the 1800s from the fathers. That was John Henry Newman's initiative. 
the Library of the Church Fathers. The Catena Aurea, which you can get online, the Golden Chain, Thomas Aquinas's uh, synthetic commentary on the Gospels drawn from the Church Fathers. That was done by John Henry Newman. Aquinas's commentary on the Gospel of John was translated into English by Newman. Um, so Newman has his fingerprint on all of those volumes. Right? And everybody was reading the Fathers. But this study of the Fathers inevitably led them to accept as common, commonplace and obvious views that were at odds with the Reformers, with Luther and Calvin. Right. So hold on a second. And at the same time, they, they believed they were at odds with Rome, that there were late accretions and corruptions having to do with Mary and the Pope that was not part of the Christianity of the Fathers. And this led to their articulation of a via media, Right. So the third uh, middle way between Catholicism on one hand and Protestantism on the other. Protestantism was marked by enthusiasm. That was a typical kind of code word of criticism at the time and, Protest and Catholicism by superstition. Right. So this calm, clear, balanced, proportionate, stable middle way, which was found in the fathers avoided both of those extremes. It was the recovery of Christianity before its corruption, whatever the time of Constantine or the Middle Ages or... But people would never really study the history very carefully. This leads Newman to say, at the beginning of his essay and development of Christian doctrine, anyone who is steeped in history ceases to be a Protestant. And so the more he read, the more it became untenable. Um, his separation from Rome but there were three, this via media was exploded in three ways. First is the tracks for the times. These are little pamphlets that were published in the Oxford movement to articulate their, their views. Now it's really, these were very revolutionary views because since the time of Henry VIII, the church in England was deeply interconnected with secular government. And Newman and his fellows were appealing to the fathers to separate the church at least in spirit and in practice, from any kind of mentality of worldliness. Right. This is, by the way, let's step back and say this is an extraordinary achievement. You have somebody from the, really his, his life coincides with the high Victorian period, really styling himself and really acquiring the mind of a Saint Jerome, right? Or a Saint Anthony or a Saint John Chrysostom. This is an extraordinary thing, right? Um, but these tracts proceeded and they became, in a certain sense, more radical and more Catholic until Tract 90, which was an interpretation of the articles of the Anglican religion, the 39 articles, to argue that they were consistent with Catholic faith. And by Catholic, they were not clear whether they meant the fathers or the historic faith of the church but it was disturbing enough to the Anglican bishops that they suppressed that tract. That tract was also, though, extremely popular. It sold, I don't know how many copies, tens, hundreds of thousands of copies. If you've ever seen the picture of Newman's library in the Birmingham Oratory, it's a semicircular library that goes up four or five flights with all of those beautiful books that are in that library and a desk right in the middle. That's where Newman worked. 
because after he became a Catholic, he moved to the or he became an Oratorian, uh, the congregation founded by Saint Philip Neri, and taught in a boys' school in Birmingham. And we'll get to in a second. I'll say some of the, the implications of that. It's a bit of a digression for our purposes. But that library he purchased with the proceeds from Track Ninety. <laughs> the whole thing, right now. It's a bit of a digression. When he became Catholic, he left Oxford. He didn't have the prestige in British society. It was a profoundly anti-Catholic society. He went to Birmingham. Birmingham is, like I would liken it, I used to live in the city of Worcester. Uh, Cleveland is like Birmingham, right? It's not New York City and it's not Chicago. It's a place of industry with a lot of people who want to be like the people in Chicago and New York. Right? I love Cleveland, don't get me wrong. But it's, you don't go there. <laughs> if you're in Oxford, you don't move to Birmingham, right? And then he went from being the leader of the, all the top intellectuals in the country to teaching boys, like 10-year-olds. Right? That's what he did for the rest of his life. And he was ridiculed for this. And he's very humble. Right? So. The second thing that excluded the Via Media was that the Anglican Church permitted their members to be under the jurisdiction of a Lutheran bishop in the Holy Land. And this was such a wobbliness and unclarity about responsibility for the deposit of faith, Newman thought, that it really unsettled him greatly. Because in, in the Anglican Church, the apostolic succession is affirmed. And the, you know, the validity of orders was asserted. That was actually um, rejected by a Catholic pope. Was it Leo XIII? Some, was he the one who made the decision? Termination on Anglican orders? Okay. And then the third is that Newman could find no tenable rule of faith. This is the one that's most important for our purposes. No tenable rule of faith for this via media. The Protestants had a very clear rule of faith faith, scripture alone. So anything that's not in scripture needs to be rejected. Newman couldn't accept that. There are many criticisms of sola scriptura throughout uh, his writings. There's the obvious point that the church established the canon, establishes the canon of scripture. Um, there's the obvious point that scripture in no way seems designed to, to teach systematically all the truths of the faith. Certain things seem undetermined by scripture, like the validity or propriety of infant baptism. And so Newman never had any kind of um, a, a judgment in favor of um, sola scriptura. But he, he did very much accept what seemed, which I think is a common view among Episcopalians and Anglicans today, that you can kind of draw a line up to a certain council or certain fathers and say, what everybody believed up until that point is the rule of faith, right? And there's a famous rule of St. Vincent of Larens, what's been everywhere always by everyone accepted is the teaching of the Catholic Church. And Newman begins development of doctrine citing St. Vincent's rule. Right? And he, he came to believe that it was inadequate, not that it isn't true in substance, but it's true in substance and can be seen to be true on the same grounds in which, if you accept the authority of the Council of Trent, you can see why St. Vincent's uh, principle is, rule is, is true in substance. 
it, it came about in this way for Newman. He, you know, everybody, you know, in Oxford would have both a pastoral concern and a scholarly concern. And Newman, is, like, take, take as a modern analog C.S. Lewis. Right? C.S. Lewis wrote these great works in Christian apologetics, but he's also a tremendous scholar of Renaissance and medieval literature. You can't be at Oxford without being a great scholar in some area, some dimension. For Newman, it was the Arian controversy of the fourth century. The Arians were the heretical group which maintained that Jesus was not God, but the highest created being. So he was an expert in this. And he saw how the Arians quoted scripture and also used the sayings of the the uh, anti-Nicene fathers, these are the fathers who preceded the Nicene Council, which, which declared the divinity of Christ, right? So, and, re and refuted, rejected Arianism. And what he saw is that there wasn't enough clarity in scripture or in the fathers to deduce, so to speak, the wrongness of Arianism. That without an authority in the church, to decide the matter and to say what was really, so to speak, the, the right path through these apparently conflicting statements. There was this, the tradition just didn't speak with enough clarity. So um, his argument, you might want to say, or realization on the basis of which he wrote his, his essay on the development of doctrine is that any rule which was sufficient for refuting Arianism would be inadequate um, for maintaining the via media, that it would, you'd have to open the door to other doctrines like Petrine primacy, the primacy of Peter, or Mary's role in the Catholic Church if you adopted the same procedure towards these other teachings that you were forced to adopt towards Arianism. And he became convinced that the Anglican Church at the time was an analog of Arianism historically. So we look back and we see that Arianism is kind of this branch that comes out of the ancient faith and it kind of withers and dies. Right? And he read a phrase in Augustine, Securus Judicat Orbis Terarum, the entire globe of the earth is reliable in its judgment. And he thought, well, can't the whole world say that of us, this via media, which has only kind of paper existence and is not, apparently not even believed here in England by our own bishops? Right. And you know that since the time of Newman in the, say, the 1820s and 30s, there's been this progressive falling away from historic Christianity within the Anglican Church, leading to many people leaving and becoming Catholics, and many people's faith is unsettled. Newman saw that at the beginning. Maybe it was happening already at the time of Henry VIII. I mean, it did with respect to divorce, of course. But it, the, the Anglican, Anglicans under the authority of a Lutheran bishop, suppressing Tract 90. It's a similar thing, but kind of an embryo back then at the time. All right. So anyway, he wrote, he, I mean, he knew very well what Tridentine Catholicism was. And he wrote his essay on development of doctrine to clarify in his own mind his ability consistently and with, on a principled way to accept Tridentine Catholicism on the same principles of interpretation of history that he thought were necessary for vindicating the orthodoxy of the Council of Nicaea against the Arians. 
He retreated to a little town outside of Oxford called Littlemore and formed a kind of religious group there, like a small monastery, although it was mixed. It was men and women who were there. They kept separate, of course. And he worked away at this essay. And even before he was finished, he was convinced that he should convert and kind of lost zeal to write the thing. But you can see in the final chapters, he doesn't have quite the same passion in the beginning. He got in touch with a Dominican priest, Dominic Barbieri, I think is his name, asked him to come and receive him into the church. I made a pilgrimage once to Littlemore before Newman was a blessed or a saint. And I saw the desk on which he wrote Development of Christian Doctrine. It's like one of these architect's desks. It's just a huge piece of wood, right? That, that's pivots, but it's beautiful wood. It's beautiful dark wood with beautiful finish and so on. And when he finished, uh, or the, the essay well enough to at least to persuade himself, he pivoted the thing until it was flat, and that became the altar on which Saint, uh, now it's Blessed Dominic, uh, celebrated that first Mass that he attended as a Catholic. He was not a priest he, at the time, so he didn't con-celebrate the Mass. There was no such thing as con-celebration anyway. But he was, he was just a, somebody who heard the Mass the way we speak today. And, but it was that same desk. I think that's such a beautiful and brilliant testimony to integration of scholarly work and, and Christian belief. The procedure of this essay is first to set down antecedent probabilities. That's a famous phrase in Newman, antecedent probabilities. And then to examine the evidence from the father in light of these antecedent probabilities. He thinks that in general, this is the right way to go in any kind of scholarly investigation. I'm completely convinced that he's correct by that, about that. I just want to tell you, though, that he takes this method from Richard Watley. Richard Watley was a member of the Noetics at Oriel College. And Newman was an assistant to Watley, who wrote a very successful treatise on logic, and Newman helped him with that. And Watley credits Newman with many of the examples and with other assistants in his preface to the logic. But it's not, and many people know this, but it's hardly known that Newman also assisted on Watley's almost as successful treatise on rhetoric. And it's the treatise on rhetoric that says that in order to persuade somebody, you should do these two steps. You should first introduce, I think, what Watley calls a priori reasons, which establish what you should expect to see reasonably in the text. And then you proceed directly to the evidence to vindicate or not those priors, an economist would call them. Right. Newman actually liked this method so much that he reduced it to a two or three page handout and gave it to all of his comp students when he taught them composition. So he follows this method in the in the development, and he says, well, we should expect to see development. We see development in political views. We see development in, in, in anything that anyone holds. It doesn't remain static. We, we see development in religious associations. Our Lord gives parables of development. I, in a sense, was contributing antecedent probabilities when I talked about Aristotle's method in, in investigating something. And the, the first third of the book has nothing to do with the church fathers. And then he turns to the evidence from the church fathers in light of this establishing antecedently probable, we'd expect to see Christianity to develop. Okay. Then what would we count as the development if we do? What he, and then after he goes through the fathers, he 
identifies criteria to distinguish true from false developments, like sameness of type, vitality, fruitfulness. They're, they're similar to what you um, use for identifying sameness of growth or development in a living thing and for distinguishing a cancer from, for example, from a healthy growth in a living being. And he does this not because he's suspicious of church authorities, but in the spirit of testing, testing spirits, be good bankers, our Lord used to say. You know, that I'm working on a book right now on the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to be entitled Be Good Bankers. Be Good Bankers is one of the agrafa. Does this term mean anything to you? There's certain sayings of our Lord that are not in Scripture, but are attributed to him in tradition outside of the four Gospels. The most famous of these is, it is more blessed to give than to receive, which is not in the Gospels. That's actually in St. Paul. By the way, scholars raise the question, why are there so few? Like, that's the only one, the one that's in St. Paul. Preachers today, when they preach Christianity, are always doing so relative to stories and sayings in the gospel. Why didn't early Christians do that when they wrote their epistles? They seem to have tremendous facility in explaining Christianity without quoting Jesus. To my mind, that's already strong evidence against sola scriptura, right? Scripture didn't play that role in early Christianity. People think it needs to play today. Anyway. So, our Lord said, be good bankers. It's quote, it's, um, the agrafar, these sayings, be good bankers is the best um, supported. Uh, many church fathers attribute this statement to Jesus. And they typically take it to mean um, weed out genuine currency from counterfeit. Testing of spirits, it's called, in the spiritual tradition. I think it means a lot more than that, but it means at least that. And that's what Newman's doing in Development of Christian Doctrine. He sets down those marks, helps you to be good bankers, helps you, helps you to identify a proposal as a genuine development or as some kind of heretical uh, corruption of the tradition. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not walking you through Development of Christian Doctrine. I'm pointing to you, uh, pointing it out to you. I'm, I'm like John the Baptist. You know, this is something that you should read. I'm explaining what it is and what role it plays. Um, it's a good time to read this handout because it helps helps you to see how for Newman, his style is so... is. I find it just absolutely beautiful. Uh, it's hard for people to read today because he writes in long sentences. But people who can read him do regard him as maybe the greatest stylist of English prose. And remember I, I said there were different ways in which you could understand development. It could be exegesis, it could be differentiation, it could be specification, it might be drawing out what's potential already. As you read this passage, which is a selection from development, think to yourself, well, what kind of development is this precisely? Does it fit into any of those categories, or is it a new category? What do we need to to say about this? This is a, I'll just give you an outline of it, because it's going to be a little bit hard to understand it, I think. He's talking about a kind of explosion of expressions of Marian piety in the early 5th century, after the Nicene Council of Nicaea, in the late 
fourth and early fifth century. And if you're giving a, a, a theory of development of doctrine, you have to explain why. Right? Why wasn't that there from the beginning? That was always true. Right? This is one of the things that you need to do. You need to explain the silence of the tradition. And this is his account. I think this is so brilliant. It's one of the most stunning things I've ever read. So he says this. So remember, the Arians believed that Jesus was not God. He was the highest created being. And, and one of the ways in which Arianism was refuted was to say that Aria, the Arians, his followers, no matter how much they magnified Jesus and tried thereby to align themselves with this kind of and sometimes ambiguous historical record from earlier fathers, still did not arrive at the point of orthodoxy so long as they resisted saying that Jesus was God. Say how many magnified, exalted things you want about Jesus. If you don't take that step in saying that he's God, you have not reached orthodoxy, because if you will, the infinite gap between a creature and the creator. So this is now what he says about Marian piety. There was one other subject on which the Arian controversy had a more intimate, though not an immediate, influence. It discovered a new sphere, if we may so speak, in the realms of light, to which the church had not yet assigned its inhabitant. Arianism had admitted that our Lord was both the God of the evangelical covenant and the actual creator of the universe. This is the language they used. Right, hard to suss them out, right? But even this was not enough, because Arianism did not confess him to be the one everlasting, infinite, supreme being, but as one who was made by the supreme. It was not enough, in accordance with that heresy, to proclaim him as having an ineffable origin before all worlds. That's what they said. Not enough to place him high above all creatures as the type of all the works of God's hands, which the Arians said. Not enough to make him the king of all saints, the intercessor for man with God, the object of worship, the image of the Father. Not enough because it was not all. And between all and anything short of all, there was an infinite interval. The highest of creatures is leveled with the lowest in comparison of the one creator himself. That is, the Nicene Council recognized the eventful principle that while we believe and profess any being to be made of a created nature, such a being is really no god to us, though honored by us with whatever high titles and with whatever homage. Arius or Asterius did all but confess that Christ was the Almighty. They said much more than St. Bernard or St. Alfonso have since said of the Blessed Mary. Yet they left him a creature and were found wanting. Thus there was a wonder in heaven. A throne was seen far above all other created powers, mediatorial, intercessory, a title archetypal, a crown bright as the morning star, a glory issuing from the eternal throne, robes pure as the heavens, and a scepter over all. And who was the predestined heir of that majesty? The vision is found in the apocalypse, 
a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. The votaries of Mary do not exceed the true faith unless the blasphemers of her son came up to it. The Church of Rome is not idolatrous unless Arianism is orthodoxy. That's brilliant, right? So question is what kind, if we can step back from that in wonderment, what kind of development is that? Where the error of Arianism clears the way for greater insight, Newman would say, into the position of Mary. Is that what kind of development? Because this, this is included in his concept of development. We can talk about that in Q&A. I want to conclude with some questions about development for today. Have we witnessed development of doctrine in our own time, let's say the last 200 years? And what are the false invocations of this notion of development of doctrine that we need to be on guard against? So first, the assumption. Right, that was defined in 1940-something. I, I should know, should have looked that up. Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. It's left unsaid whether she suffered physical death. Is that development of doctrine? No. Feast of the Dormition, the unclarity or secret, kind of secretiveness about what actually happened there has been present in Christian tradition as far as we can see going back. I don't think that counts as any kind of development. It's more like a confirmation of a belief that was already widely held in, in Christianity from the earliest time. The Immaculate Conception, that Mary, from the moment of her conception, was free of any stain of original sin. Is that a development of doctrine? I want to say yes, it was. But I want to say at the same time that it's a very slight refinement. You may not be aware of this, and most people are not, that everyone involved in this debate conceded that Mary was cleansed of original sin before she was born and certainly before she bore Jesus. Nobody ever disputed that. There's no history of record of any kind of Orthodox person disputing that. The question was whether there was any instant where she first had human nature affected by original sin, and then that was removed from her. That was the debate. Right? So the side of St. Thomas Aquinas, who's often said to be a dissenter from this view, would be satisfied if for a nanosecond she were conceived with original sin, and then that was removed immediately. Right. So the dispute was really very small. And it was defined in 18 something or other. I should know this too. Uh, 1853 or something. Anyone know the date of the? What? 1854. 1854. 1854. 19. Okay, good. No, 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 it's definitely 1854, because Bernadette of Lourdes knew about the Immaculate Conception. So um, that's what's defined in 1854. Yes, that was the development of doctrine, but a very, very slight refinement, it seems to me. The question was, how far back did the saving power of our Lord's death and resurrection work retroactively, all the way to her? the first moment of her conception, or just a little bit after that? That was the question. 
What about the Second Vatican Council? Did any development of doctrine take place then? Well, I do think so, yes. But it's a, it's a curious kind of development because the Second Vatican Council, if you've studied it, is marked by what's called personalism. And I think that it's true to say the Council of Trent thinks of morality, for example, primarily in relationship to a moral law. And you find this reflected in the writings of casuists like St. Alphonsus Liguori. There's another way of thinking of morality, which is in relationship to, to virtue. And that's classical, and you find that as well in St. Thomas Aquinas. So the, the whole second part of the second part of the Summa is devoted to virtue and just a tiny little bit in natural law. It's kind of curious that modern exegetes reverse that proportion, as it were. They focus on the Aquinas on natural law. He has a teeny tiny discussion of natural law and a whole treatise on the virtues. Right? But I think that the Second Vatican Council intended to rework Christian moral life and even Christian doctrine in relationship to personalism, which is thinking of things, any kind of thing, any kind of artifact, anything that's non-animate, as subordinate to the order of persons, as Pope John Paul II would call it, and properly interpreted only insofar as it's lifted up to the order of persons, as John Paul II. And I think that that's new. And I think that um, it casts a slightly new light on everything and gives a new spirit to everything. But that's not a new doctrine or a refutation of a heresy. There's no anathema seat that's present in the Second Vatican Council. But I want to talk about, um, so maybe in Q&A, you have ideas of other recent developments. Now I want to talk about the false invocation of Newman's ideas. And this is usually done by people who are more concerned with morality than doctrine. And Newman somewhere says it would be absurd and laughable to say that, doc that morality can develop. And he doesn't think that it has anything, development has anything to do with morality. Remember, it's an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And changes in morality are no part of his antecedent probabilities for developments in doctrine. But what you find people do is they take what they say are developments in morality, and they're really construing them as contradictions in morality, changes in the church's moral teaching. And then they want to say, well, this is development of doctrine, and then, to, then they want to apply it to something else. Like it's usually usury, capital punishment, and applied to sexual morality. That's the standard procedure people take. I just want to, I want to say this on that mode of arguing. That with Newman, I don't think that ethics and morality changes. You do see two things, though. Okay, one is this, that there is a kind of action which was once supposed to exhaust the genus. Right? There are only actions of this kind. But which it becomes clear, because of some kind of development or change in culture, is just one species of a larger genus. I, a very good example is, if you know anything about the history of mathematics, it used to be thought that geometry was Euclidean geometry. And then two forms of non-Euclidean geometry were discovered, and now mathematicians have a whole area of research called geometries, of which Euclidean is one type. Euclidean geometry is the geometry of flat surfaces, and then there's the geometry of the sphere, 
which is Riemannian, and then there's the geometry of the saddle, which is Lobachevskian, if you want to be very simple about it, right? So the people who asserted that a lot, there's only one line parallel to a point separate from another line, which is, par sorry, there's only one line you can draw in a point separate from a line, which is parallel to that line. They were absolutely correct for flat surfaces, right? So something similar happened in the case of usury. The universal condemnation of usury comes from a culture in which money was lended at in, lent at interest to people who are planning to use that money to satisfy needs, immediate needs. They were going to consume the money, not invest the money. Right? Land was always treated differently, by the way. You could charge rent on land. It was going to be used productively. Right? And there's no economic distinction between those two. Once the economy developed such that there was a time value of money, opportunity cost of money, there were always investments available for money, then lending at interest for consumption right, was just one kind of lending. And even today it's unethical. Right? Credit cards should not be extending unsecured loans to people who are using them to pay their bills. I'll give you an example of how responsible lenders deal with this. You may know that at the height of the COVID crisis, major banks like um, Chase and um, some others shut down their line of business related to home equity loans because they believe that people are going to take out home equity lines of credit, home, home equity loans to pay their bills. And that would be an abuse of that kind of lending. So they just shut down their business. That's the proper thing to do, right? And also lending money at high interest rates is usurious because any kind of return that is not related to the investment potential of the money, but's intended to be in some sense exploitative is still unethical. Pope Francis had a wonderful uh, conference on modern abuses of usury just last year. It's a serious problem actually, throughout the whole world. Right. Okay, so, that, so there's that. Usury is still wrong in the way in which it was wrong 2,000 years ago. And lending money at interest with an op with, with, for investment is still right, but hardly recognized 2,000 years ago. Okay, now there's another thing that takes place. When there's an implicit condition on a practice, which is not recognized because the condition seems so absurd and unrealizable that people don't even bother to formulated. And this is what we've seen in the case of capital punishment. So if you look at Evangelium Vitae, the encyclical on life of Pope John Paul II, where he wants to say that capital punishment should be rare, if non-existent, he gives that condition. Now, he may not be right about that. I don't think you have to accept the, his analysis of the change in order to accept the finding of the encyclical or the principles of the encyclical. But it's interesting that his explanation took this form. He said that prisons were not stable and developed enough for most of the history of the world for anyone to consider imprisoning someone for life as punishment for murder. And there's an implicit premise in discussions of capital punishment. If bloodless means are available, they should be preferred over the shedding of blood. And John Paul II said that's always been held by Christians. Right? But it just could never be brought to bear in capital punishment in any kind of serious way because 
societies were unstable and prisons were, they were probably death sentences anyway. I mean, how many people lived more than 10 years in a prison, ancient prison, right? So um, modern prisons that were stable and reliable just didn't exist. Now that they do, that principle that bloodless means are to be preferred comes into play. No change in the doctrine of death penalty. The state still has the authority to take lives if that's necessary to uphold justice. Okay, so this is um, 529. That's exactly an hour. And I was asked to speak an hour, and I didn't think I would make it. But uh, there, there we are.